toss endless online searching to the curb. Let us edit out the noise and bring you medicine without misinformation. Welcome to the MedEdit Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Jessica Gray. And me, Dr. Carrie Sorrell. Together, we will provide real, evidence-based medical information that will empower your health decisions, answer your questions, even the cringeworthy ones, and help you navigate the overload of information related to health and wellness. Let's sprinkle a little laughter and a whole lot of knowledge into your day. Hey, Carrie, we're back in the studio in our big pink chairs. How's it been going? Good, good. How have you been, Jess? I'm good. I'm just getting over a cold. Of course, I Uh, came down with all this lovely winter illness stuff that we actually are going to be talking about today. So this is great timing. Yes, our house has been doing the same. I feel like... I feel like we're a menu of soup of the day item over here. Like, is it going to be a virus, bacterial, combo, like chef's choice? (laughs) And it's always something. They wake up and I'm like, all right, what is it? What is it today? I feel the exact same, especially when you're getting it from your kiddos, for sure. Um, I know that you're definitely comfortable handling most things at home with over-the-counter remedies, just like I am. But don't, you know, don't you remember when you were first starting out or how's your kids, you know, right when they're very young and we had no idea what to do when they got sick. And we were running to the pediatrician every five seconds because you just knew we had to be missing something. Even as doctors, we just knew we were missing something. Absolutely. I mean, I'm even married to a pediatric trained physician and I still remember those few few first illnesses as looking at each other like, oh, what are we supposed to do? (laughs) Well, you're not the alone at all. And thank goodness we have pediatrician Dr. Arrington Madison on our show today to talk about pediatric winter illnesses such as RSV. With RSV being the leading cause of infant hospitalization in the United States, it is an especially important topic that we're talking about today. We will discuss the symptoms, treatment, prevention, and most importantly, what you can do as a parent at home in that scary situation. I cannot wait. I always love talking to Arrington. After that, we will jump into our Hollywood hype time. And today we're going to be talking baby heads. (laughs) All right. Macrocephaly to be exact. And I'm sure you remember when everyone freaked out about the size of Paris Hilton's baby's head. Well, let's talk about what's actually considered normal when it comes to your baby's head shape and size. Kids, the cutest little cesspools of disease ever created, right? Thanks to Dr. Madison, when your kid is sick, you will know what to do. And another phrase I never thought I'd be saying on this show, but after that, we're going to talk baby head sizes. So let's get started. Okay, so today we are very lucky to have Dr. Arrington Madison on the show. She is a full-time pediatrician with experience taking care of kiddos from birth through 18 years old. She works for University Medical Center locally where we are, and she runs a very busy practice. I am so lucky that she's actually my baby's pediatrician. So when we've been talking about bothering our pediatricians and running to them every five seconds, I have a, very, a lot of experience with this personally with Dr. Madison. Me too, which is probably why she loves me. We both bother her all the time. So welcome to the MedEdit Podcast, Arrington. Hi, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for today. We are so excited to have you. Um, Arrington, I know you remember all too well, like I said, when my son was sick, especially that first year of life, and we were battling every viral illness possible and ear infections galore, just nonstop. We really kept thinking this was not going to end. And as a parent, and again, as a doctor, I still was sitting there terrified. You know, what are we going to do? What can I actually do at home? My son had RSV three times by the time he was 18 months old. Thankfully, we never ended up in the ER or the hospital. But I mean, every single one of my friends had a baby who had RSV did end up in the ER hospital ICU. And so I saw the severity. And so it was really scary. I know Carrie was in the same boat at one time with her kiddos and RSV too. Oh my gosh. If I could count the number of times we were hospitalized with bronchiolitis, 
I remember staring at them being like, okay, is there oxygen low enough? I need to take them yet. Is, how's that respiratory rate trying to decide that, that moment of knowing what to do next? Absolutely. Yeah, it's really scary. Yeah, and exactly. And can you imagine being a parent without any medical background? You know, that's got to be even more scary to really just be out of control in that sense. So Arrington, that's that's why we're here is to help our listeners, help us understand what can we do to make this better and a little more comfortable. Let's start with the topic of RSV. That's where kind of we were started out at. Out of all the pediatric winter illnesses, this is the one we never fail to see large number of kids hospitalized it with each year, often in the pediatric ICU. So it's definitely a mama's nightmare. Each year, 58,000 to 80,000 mm. children are hospitalized in the United States with RSV. And RSV is responsible for 2.1 million outpatient visits among children younger than five years old. So that's 2.1 million visits each year. People are coming to see someone like Dr. Madison here to try to figure out what do we do with this RSV. So Dr. Madison, can you first tell us a little more about what is the difference between RSV and let's say the virus that just causes the common daycare cold? Like what is the actual difference? Okay, so RSV, it's called respiratory syncytial virus, and it's usually around kind of this time of year, um, the winter time that we kind of are dealing with this RSV. Kind of how I describe it to my parents and patients is it's kind of goopy. It, it makes kids just goopy. They kind of have this yucky, runny nose. They feel miserable. They have fever. But the biggest, scariest thing is it causes all that mucus buildup in their lungs and then kids can have trouble breathing. And so then that's kind of what y'all were talking about is when the virus does get to the point where it causes kids to have issue, their oxygen dis desaturations go down, then they end up having to go to the hospital. Sometimes we have to give them oxygen in order to kind of combat that illness. How do you know it's RSV versus, you know, like when we sit there and I'm like, okay, another daycare cold, okay. He's coughing a little bit more, maybe a little more work of breathing. How do you know it's RSV? What are the symptoms we're looking out for? What When do we take them in to the pediatrician? So that, that is the hardest part, right? Um, at daycares, it's not just one virus that's going around, it's several. RSV in itself, thankfully, we do have a test. Usually, I only test for RSV less than two years old, just because older than two, there's really not a whole, whole lot we're going to do with it. Now, there are situations where that changes, right? Where maybe an, there's an older kiddo at home, but then mom just had a baby that's two weeks old and mom's just really, really worried. Then there are occasions when we would test. Um, but to diagnose... RSV itself, it's really a little bit of a clinical diagnosis, but also uses the test as well. Okay. So that's good to know. So if we take them to the pediatrician, especially under two, we can expect that possibly they may swab them for RSV to confirm the diagnosis. But that's good to mention that if they're older and your pediatrician says there's no need to swab, they're probably looking pretty good and they assume that's what's going on, that we're not being neglected or right. anything. It's, it's a standard of care, maybe not to actually always swab in every situation. Yeah. And I, um, I, I think definitely what you hit on about feeling crummy, I kind of always felt like that was a good marker as well is if my kid is outside running laps, <laughs> it's probably okay. Probably not RSV. Wiping the snot yeah, as he runs. Exactly. When he's like wanting to lay on the couch or do his something atypical, it's more likely something serious. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That's what I've seen with mine too. So how long is my child contagious for? Because that's the other thing is we, all three of us here are full-time working moms. Our kiddos do attend daycare or school. So when can I send them back to school? 
That's a tricky question. Um, it's it, it's a hard one to answer exactly because each kid is going to ha- kind of combat it a little bit differently. What I usually recommend is definitely staying out of daycare for probably two to three days after they get the diagnosis and definitely at least 24 hours fever free. That's going to be the biggest thing. I usually try if parents are able to, though, to kind of keep them out a little bit longer just because they can have RSV and not necessarily test positive for it because it has to have an incubation period for a couple of days before they end up testing positive. So you're saying there could be a false negative if we test too early. Too early. Correct. Kind of like with several viruses like COVID and those kinds of things as well. That makes sense. And so, you know, things that we kind of learned or have picked up, things like RSV can survive hours on hard surfaces such as tables or crib rails, typically lives on soft surfaces such as tissues and hands for shorter amounts of time. So really, you know, in your own home, we've got to be careful about trying not to spread it. Like you were talking about the mom that maybe has the two-week-old that would be even worse off if they did get RSV. We need to be really careful about hygiene, hand hygiene, and cleaning those surfaces, right? Oh, for sure. Um, hand cleanliness is going to be a big, 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 big part of it. But like you said, I loved how you uh, how y'all talked about like even crib rails and stuff like that. The places where your kid touches all the time, but we don't necessarily always remember to clean that spot. Um, but good hand washing, have some uh, hand sanitizer around the house, several different locations, um, I think is the biggest part. That's good tips. Hand sanitizer in lots of locations yeah. is definitely a good option. We definitely do that for sure. So let's say that we my kid has RSV. Maybe they were diagnosed, you know, at the clinic in your clinic or something. And then later I'm noticing that they're getting worse. Like maybe they're febrile or maybe they don't have a fever. They're just increased work of breathing. What are the signs and symptoms I need to be looking for in order to say, I need to take them back to the doctor for a new assessment again. I don't want to bug you all the time worrying about them, but what are the things I need to be looking for? And maybe also what do I need to be looking for when I might need to go to the emergency room? Right. So what I usually tell my patients and their parents is trust your mom gut trust your parent gut. You're going to know if something's off, right? You guys know your kids better than anybody else. Um, And so kind of like what Carrie was saying earlier, like when your kid's just not acting like the normal selves, then I'd have a little bit more concern. Um, But what I kind of explain is kids with RSV, they're going to breathe fast. They just are. Their body's fighting something off. They're going to have lots of mucus, things like that. It's more of when they're having the work of breathing. So working really hard to breathe, where you're seeing their ribs, you're seeing them having to actually have to work for the breath. And it has to last a couple of minutes. Like it's an uncomfortable couple of minutes, then you need to go to the ER. Now, and the other part with RSV that makes it difficult is I can't predict which kid's going to have to go to the ER. I can't predict. It's kind of out of, out of my hands, out of your hands, but usually days three to five are the worst. So that's kind of where I say, Hey, don't be surprised if they worsen from this day to this day, because that's going to be the worst of the of the viral illness itself. Um, usually, when they're out of that week, at that day five point, then we they usually start to recover, and they usually don't necessarily dip down or end up having to go to the ER after that. Now that makes sense. It's really good setting that expectation, so that way you understand that it will maybe get a little worse before it gets right. better. And so, when you're talking about the work of breathing, I know that a lot of our listeners have talked about asking questions about things like retractions and nasal flaring. When you Google, you see some of those things. And we learned about that in med school. So can you describe a little bit what that looks like when I'm looking at my baby's tummy and the ribs and the nose? What am I looking at for work of breathing? So the biggest thing is a little belly breathing, kind of what you just said is normal. So the basically I can see the base of kind of their ribs. They're kind of kind of working a little bit. Now, the the work of breathing that I'm talking about where we have to go to the ER is basically where you're seeing all of their ribs, 
Um, their nose is kind of flaring outward, like you said. Um, sometimes like where their vo vocal cords are, that can sometimes kind of go inward as well. And that's when they're really just having trouble breathing. Okay. Those are good signs to be looking for. So those are the things we need to be saying there's a problem. We maybe need to go to the ER or, you know, at least get into the pediatrician at the minimum. What Correct. are the treatment options? So when I go to the pediatrician and I'm asking, obviously it's a virus, so I don't get antibiotics. What are my treatment options? That's the hard part too. It's a little bit of watchful waiting is what I say. Biggest thing is, you know, just support fluids, fluids, fluids. Um, making sure they make at least three wet diapers in 24 hours is going to be the biggest thing for hydration. Secondly is make them comfortable. So if they're six months or less, they can have Tylenol um, as long as they're older than two months old. And then also Motrin as well. So kids that are older than six months old and they have, you can alternate Tylenol and Motrin um, is just making them comfortable. And so the biggest goal for RSV and for them to get better is just making kids comfortable. What about like nasal suctioning and all that? Thing? You know, those free to baby little suction, oh. those other crazy little ones. Like what about? Yes. Suction? So suctioning is awesome. So they have this nose Frida thing that I feel like I should be paid for, you know, for as much as I recommend this thing. Um, but it's kind of interesting here. Parents often get kind of grossed out because you literally use this plastic piece. That's, um yeah. And then you suck the boogers out. Um, I do recommend getting some saline drops or they have like a saline mist where you spray it in their nostril, let it sit a couple of seconds, and then you suction all of it out. Um, I recommend parents doing that, doing the saline. They can do saline five or six times a day. I usually recommend only suctioning about two or three times a day. Okay. That's good. Yeah, to not, know. not to cause irritation, but correct. I'll be honest with you, Arrington. I am team hospital syringe bulb. Oh, yeah. Really? Old school. I don't know why. I've always just felt like I've had better success with that one than with my nose, Frida. So huh. I don't know. I'm telling you, I've got both. <laughs> don't worry. As my pediatrician, I can tell you I have both. Yeah. I, I just, I like the hospital syringe bulbs. They make lots of different kinds because I have one too that I sent to school with my son that's like an automated one. Ooh. Like it has a battery oh, yeah, pack and everything too. too. So yeah. they do make all sorts of different ways for that suction. But what about um, humidifiers? So humidifiers are good. Um, I don't necessarily know if they actually make a huge, huge difference, to be completely honest with you. Um, they have cold cold mist humidifiers, warm mist humidifiers. Um, I don't think it's going to hurt, especially where we live in Lubbock, Texas, where it's dry almost all year. Um, and I think it does help a little bit. Um, but I don't know if necessarily it's going to help a whole, whole lot, to be completely honest with you. I think yeah. that there's, you know, I, I we have one in his room right. sometimes, but I haven't necessarily always relied on it, you know, even yeah. when he's been feeling good, obviously. Just make sure you follow the cleaning instructions if you oh, do yes. get a humidifier. True. We don't want any of those multi-drug resistant bugs. So. Oh, they For can sure. Awesome. Well, I think we've done a great job talking about what RSV is, how it's different from maybe the common cold, when you should go see your pediatrician or go to the emergency room, maybe how we can prevent the spread and make your child comfortable. Arrington, do you mind touching on the RSV vaccine recommendations with us? Because I know that's kind of changed a little bit in the last maybe year. Yes. Yeah, so this RSV vaccines, it's pretty incredible. Um, the studies have really um, shown that it's been really helpful. The unfortunate part is, is we didn't get a lot of um, doses this year for the children. Um, my clinic itself only got five doses um, mm. and it was only enough. The, the dose that we got was only for kids who were 11 pounds or less. So, mm. I mean, it, it narrows the 
the group of kids that possibly could get it. Yes. Um, and so the supply and demand, um, is pretty intense. Um, we weren't able to get very many doses. Um, so that's been made it a little bit more complicated in terms of, um, who can get the vaccine itself. Um, the other aspect of it that's been a little bit difficult is it kind of came out and then we didn't really know about insurance coverage and stuff like that. So parents were having to pay out of pocket about $500 per dose. Um, and so that's, that's a little bit more difficult for parents to feel comfortable doing in case they weren't going to be reimbursed, that sort of thing. So that's been a little bit difficult. Um, but this, um, this RSV vaccine, like I said, um, it's been pretty incredible. Um, but hopefully next year we're able to get more doses for kids less than one, um, who are higher, obviously who weigh more than about 11 pounds. Okay. And is that your recommendation? Usually kids less than one or what age group are you recommending the RSV vaccine? Correct. So right now it's going to be less than one. Okay, that makes sense. So, you know, we were looking up, and so of course, all these drugs and vaccines have fun names oh, to yeah. them, right? The generics, and everything. So, I'm going to butcher this name. So, when we're talking about the RSV vaccine, we're talking about the Nersivimab, yes. <laughs> which was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And I guess the brand name that we'd be more familiar with is the Bay Fortis. Is that mm-hmm. the one that you're talking about in your clinic as well? Correct, the Bay Fortis. Bay Fortis. Okay. And so, what I was see- reading, like according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, with their new recommendations, which are pretty new, actually, August of 2023. Yeah. They were saying that it's been shown to reduce the risk of medically attended cases, which I assume is fancy words for maybe getting the hospital and stuff, right. um, of RSV by 75% in clinical trials, which that, like you were saying, it's game changing. Um, and just seeing that we can actually do something to prevent these things for these little babies. Oh, for sure. And you, like, I mean, hospital stay can be thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, so if we're able to keep these kids out of the hospital, um, keep them healthy, what, like what an incredible thing we could do. And with time, all these vaccines tend to be better covered by insurance, more widely available. So as we are wrapping up eventually this flu and cold and RSV season, hopefully this next coming up season in the 2024 winter season will have better access, better coverage. So to our patients, we're saying to go ahead and ask your pediatrician about it, see what coverage availability there is, see if they have availability to get the vaccine, especially in those babies that will be born in the RSV season or are at that younger age as well. Well, and also the other thing is, is um, they do have a vaccine that is for pregnant women. Um, And so that's going to be huge, especially for um, this next year as well. So if, if, you can't talk to your pediatrician about it. Talk to your OB. And then also, if, if you're going to be around grandparents for Christmas and stuff like that, those older than 65 also can qualify for the RSV vaccine as well. That's Absolutely. a very good point. Yeah, that is absolutely. one of the things I'm looking into being pregnant right now. I'm yeah. like, I want to go get my RSV vaccine. And that way I can pre- prevent or spread those antibody coverage through that after delivery for the baby. So that's awesome. Perfect. All right, Arrington, thank you so much for reviewing RSV so thoroughly for us. Let's kind of go back to the basics for our listeners some real simple stuff. What is technically considered a fever for a child? I know it's never fun getting that daycare phone call saying your kid is sick and has a fever, but just so we're all on the same page, what constitutes a fever? So a fever is 100.4 or higher. So 99 does not necessarily qualify it as a fever as much as your daycare wants to tell you that. (laughs) I know, right? And so you'd be surprised how many school notes I've given to say, okay, if the baby does not have a hundred point four or higher, she can stay at daycare. Um, so that 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 threshold is one hundred point four. Now, is that one hundred point four orally, temporally, rectally? Like, tell us how we're taking this temperature. Another good question. Um, so, I think probably the, one of the best questions I get is, okay, Doctor Madison, 
which one's your favorite thermometer? And I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea because I myself cannot find a great, accurate thermometer. What I usually say is, I mean, if your kid's having fever, you're going to know and it should tech, it, it should detect the fever. Um, now, is the one side of the forehead 101 versus 102? I say just average it out. <laughs> um, and so basically fever is 100.4. How you take it Less than about one is usually when I say you, if if you have concern about a true fever, I'd go ahead and get it rectally. Um, However, older than that, temporally through the ear or orally as well, I think they're all adequate. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. We have, we have our high thermometer and our low thermometer and then we average between the two (laughs) a lot of the time because you're right. There's so much difference between them. And obviously my kids are too old to do a rectal temperature anymore Mm -hmm. probably punch me if I tried to do that. And so whatever way I can get it to check it. And then we just average and see where it lands. Exactly. Dr. Madison, is there a difference between a fever with a virus versus a bacterial infection? Like, should I be worried that, you know, oh, they have a fever of 104.2. Is that going to be viral or bacteria or do they all just make fever? So fever is fever. So viruses can make fever. Um, Bacterial infections can make fever. I really don't worry too much about the number honestly. Um, what I tell my patients is, you know, if they, if you know that they're having fever and they don't feel good, go ahead and give them some Tylenol and then make sure that the fever goes down. I don't worry about the number. I don't care if it's 104 or 105. I just want to make sure that the fever is going down with some, um, pain relief or some medication. Um, the biggest thing with that is because I want to prevent febrile seizures. So if the temperature goes up too fast, then your kid is at risk for a febrile seizure. So I always just recommend if they have fever, go ahead and give them something for that Tylenol or Motrin, and then make sure that it's kind of going down. Is there a cutoff at which they have a certain temperature that we would say we would want to go to the ER or anything like that? Or is it just, it can get as high as it can get. I know with my little one, we were having temps over 104, not 100.4, but 104. And, you know, as a first time mom, that gets pretty scary. But then the doctor part of me kicked in and was like, well, that's kiddos have a much higher range that they can get with those fevers and it still be okay. Yeah. Like I said, there's really not a cutoff per se. Um, I really just recommend just if you feel like they're feeling, feeling yucky, go ahead and give them something. And then obviously watch the fever. If they're having seven days of fever or more then you need to be seen by a pediatrician or you need to get seen. Um, that's going to be the biggest kind of cutoff. And Arrington, I know we kind of covered this with RSV, but is there anything else at home that we think we could do for the kiddos? In case they are sick, I know we talked about, you know, humidifiers, Motrin, ibuprofen. Is there anything that we're missing as parents that we can do when we have a sick kiddo at home? I think a lot of times with parents with RSV, the cough is really, really bothersome. The cough seems to bother parents a lot. Um, And the cough with RSV, unfortunately, it will last two or three weeks. So I try and say, you know, it's good. It's moving all that mucus around in their lungs. So I don't necessarily want to necessarily suppress the cough too much. However, um, for babies that are less than one, they do have some Zarbies cough medicine that we, that I think some parents think that helps a lot, kind of coats the back of their throat. Um, they have some baby Highlands, other cough medicines. And then if they're over one, um, even just a little bit of teaspoon of honey, um, can kind of coat the back of their throat. It's kind of a good incentive to take some, something sweet. Um, and so that's kind of what I recommend also is just kind of having some over the counter cough medicines, things like that as well. So you mentioned a lot of things that are age restrictive, right? Like we talked about ibuprofen can't be used under six months. Honey can't obviously be used under one years of old risk of the botulinum toxin with that one. But are there any good resources for parents to use when trying to find medications that are safe for kids or the right doses? I know like on my phone, I have a saved chart of the Tylenol and the ibuprofen 
weight-based dosings for my kid, but is there somewhere they can look and have this easily accessible? There's a great website called healthychildren.org. It's the AAP, so the American Academy of Pediatrics. They have a basically a full website with tons of parental um, resources. They have the chart that you were mentioning that you have on your phone. They have several different charts of medications, how to give them those kinds of things. Um, and it has great information, even with things that we're not talking about today in terms of introducing solids, how to do formula, all that sort of stuff. So I usually try and guide my patients there, um, at least starting there and then contacting their pediatrician for other questions. And we'll have that website included in our show notes for our listeners so they can look that up as well and do like what I did too is take a screenshot and put it under my favorites in my phone for how often you're sick and looking that up. If you can't bother your pediatrician and you're not married to a pediatrician, then check out the website. Absolutely. (laughs) Then you'll know what to do. Thank you so much, Dr. Madison, for all your amazing insight. Don't go anywhere though, guys. We are excited to get your opinion on our next part of the show, The Hollywood Hype. Paging Dr. Sorrell. Hi, this is Dr. Carrie Sorrell, and I'm so happy that you're here. If there's something you'd like us to cover in an episode, please reach out to me or Dr. Jessica using the contact link in today's show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to this episode's Hollywood Hype segment. There's nothing scarier than having a newborn baby and people talking about how funny looking it is. First, it's just mean. And second, then you start panicking. Is there something actually medically wrong with my baby? I know. And we probably all remember when Paris Hilton welcomed her beautiful son, Phoenix, last year. And all anyone seemed to talk about was her son's head size. Listen to this clip for a refresher on what we're talking about. The Internet's got a lot of opinions on Paris Hilton's nine-month-old son, Phoenix. And now the reality star is firing back. Exactly. Paris posted these pics cradling her little boy while celebrating his first time in New York City. And not long after, the comment section was flooded with cruel jokes about the size of Phoenix's head. To start this discussion off, we of course want to say, if you have any concerns regarding your newborn, always ask your baby's doctor. But it did make us ponder, what is considered a normal head size? First, let's talk about normal. When a baby is born, they should be born with bony plates in their skull. Um, and so they eventually become that hardened part of the skull. They're called, they have something called suture lines and these kind of come together. It's why the, when you touch your baby's head, it kind of feels bumpy. Wishy. Yeah, squishy. Some areas are squishy, some areas are bumpy. Mm-hmm. And so it's that's natural. That's what the normal process that has how that baby was able to be born. But these plates in that skull allow space for the brain to grow. About 75% of this growth happens within the first two years. So that remaining 25% will take many more years into early adulthood. Fusion of these plates takes about the same amount of time. The head circumference growth can be tracked on a chart by age to tell you if it's normal. So that's something that would happen in your pediatrician's office and usually up to the age three. If it's much higher than the 97th percentile for that circumference of the head, then there's a chance the baby could have something called macrocephaly, which affects about two to 3% of the population. And this could be from something completely normal or benign. Um, Some causes could be from an actual increase in brain tissue, overgrowth of those skull bones, or an increased amount of fluid in or around the brain. Increased amounts of brain tissue can be what we call familial, which means, yeah, it runs in my family. We all got big heads. Um, Good luck giving birth. It can also be due to genetic disorders or diseases where children have difficulty metabolizing certain products in their body, so they deposit them in their brain. They can also have increased fluid, such as cerebrospinal fluid, which is the normal fluid around the brain, but it can be in larger quantities than is normal or sometimes blood. 
Treatment would depend on the underlying cause, of course. Sometimes imaging needs to be done if there are concerns. Obviously, we are not treating Paris Hilton's son, but she did comment on one of her photos that she had done the right thing and taken her baby to the doctor, the pediatrician, and was told he just has a large brain, is what she said. But thankfully, we have the amazing pediatrician, Dr. Arrington Madison, here to give us her insight. Dr. Madison, tell us when, as a parent, should we be concerned about our baby's head size? And I know my baby's got kind of a big head, <laughs> but his mom and daddy do too. So I was, you know, that's one of those things that I felt pretty comfortable with. But when should our parents be concerned about the size of their baby's head? So you wouldn't worry until your pediatrician is a little more concerned, honestly. That's the biggest thing, Jessica, is parents with ha- that have big heads. Um, their kids usually have big heads and I tell parents, um, they worry about the size and what it looks like. And I said, you know, that's why, uh, we have hair on our head, um, to kind of, to kind of put an illusion on how all our heads look. Um, no one has a perfect round head. Let's just be real. Um, and so unless there's concerning features, there's congenital issues, things like that. Um, genetics can play a part. Um, the other thing would be if there are other signs, nystagmus where their eyes aren't necessarily coming in where it needs to be. Um, they start falling, they start having other issues neurologically, then I'd be more concerned. Um, but a lot of times I just basically it's a lot of reassurance and making sure that everything's going to be okay. And tracking it, like we mentioned earlier, because like you said, there's a difference between kind of consistent large growth, all of a sudden something changing, which can sometimes signify a more serious issue. Correct. So we watch the growth velocity of it is basically what you're saying. Um, And then if we do see a rapid jump or anything like that, then we probably would go to a head ultrasound and stuff as long as that anterior fontanelle is still open. Okay, perfect. That makes sense. I mean, when I saw Paris Hilton's baby's head and everyone was like freaking out about it, I thought it was really round and cute. I guess my perception for maybe what big heads is a little bit different than what the public Um, has because they were giving her such a hard time. But it's a great Hollywood hype discussion for sure. Absolutely. And I did. I felt bad for her because he said it's a vulnerable time and having a baby is it's terrifying. It's even scarier when you're worried something might be wrong with your child. So we've all we've all been there, even celebrities like Paris Hilton. And ultimately, no matter what the cause is, let's remember to be nice. Okay, don't be a troll. Don't make fun of people, especially kids. Well, thank you, Dr. Arrington Madison, for joining us on our show today and helping us navigate the world of pediatric winter viruses such as RSV. You have given some amazing tips for our listeners, as well as even for us as moms and doctors. It's great for us to have some of those tips and be reminded of some of those simple things that really can make a difference and give us some more tools in our toolbox. So please come back again soon. Thank you. And who knew a celebrity's baby head size would be so newsworthy? Hollywood's been talking about macrocephaly, so we broke it down fact from fiction. Come follow us to learn facts about your health. Like this episode, subscribe, turn on notifications for new episodes, and tell your friends. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the MedEdit Podcast. Please click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about this episode, And to learn how you can reach Dr. Carrie Sorrell and Dr. Jessica Gray, please visit today's show notes. And don't forget, click that follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information and content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you need medical advice or help, contact your personal physician. The views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Dr. Jessica Gray and Dr. Carrie Sorrell. This podcast should not be considered as an alternative for medical advice, diagnosis, or confirmation of an illness or disease. 
Please seek assistance from your personal health practitioner.